0: of the psalms um that's that's a a part of our christian scripture and we're going to look at that tonight so uh psalms we're going to be going through them the next month or so and psalms are prayers of feeling and and that's a space in scripture that intellectually inclined protestants would do well to explore more frequently i think so for the next month we're going to be looking at a few psalms with this kind of mindset uh, today I'm going to start with a lot of stuff talking about the Psalms in general, uh, and then with that soil turned, we're going to look at what an imprecatory Psalm is, which is what some would categorize Psalm 12 as, and then we're going to finish by just looking at a close reading of Psalm 12 itself. We live in in a, in the wake of the Enlightenment, uh, what what we might call Enlightenment Christianity. We like our faith to be organized and we like it to be consistent, and we like to have a taxonomy of beliefs that we can put things into, and we often ask our theological questions in binaries. Are you a Calvinist? Are you an Arminian? Covenant baptism or believer's baptism? Predestination or free will? Complementarian or egalitarian? And the Psalms just wreck these categories with their these like seemingly random emotional outbursts. Uh, they have a free impulse to curse enemies. Uh, they indulge self-loathing. They get mad at God. Uh, they encourage dancing without inhibition, shouts, instruments, and there's metaphors on metaphors that are just stacked on top of each other that lean on the, the power and the wonder of creation in the natural world. A thinking faith, like a faith that lives in your brain, is a really good thing, but it is definitely incomplete. Some faith traditions are overly critical of what I would call thinking faith, uh, not grasping the, the deep wonder and, and firm foundation that good theology can provide. And that might be like some charismatic or revivalistic Christian cultures, but other traditions, like ours, live in an assumption that the mind is primary and somehow superior and separate from our emotions and desires. And because of that, we have a lot to learn from our charismatic brothers and sisters, but we also have a lot to learn from the Psalms. Our tradition is one that puts the accent on the mind. Um, if you look at our architecture, for instance, cause I think the Moravians are our brethren in this, uh, high minded Protestant traditions build their buildings, not in semicircles so that you can see your fellow worshipers, although many traditions do that. Uh, but we build our like schoolhouses with rows after rows that all face a lecture, right? Our thinking faith has yielded an unmovable mountain of thoughtful theology, but it can leave us emotionally stunted, and spirituality, after all, is a blending of our mind and our heart of thought and feeling. The way we interpret things and analyze them is absolutely driven by emotional desires. And when we pit emotions and thoughts against each other, we end up choosing one, okay? So sexuality would be a great case study for this dilemma. God has designs for sexuality. Sexual desires are not something that are just innately within us independent of God. They have intentional purpose and beauty and every human every human, has the challenge of stewarding that power with integrity. And no human escapes that challenge of their sexual desires veering off to self-destructive spaces, possibly also harming others and likely our relationship with God. Many of you have at one point likely had your desires met with someone else's thinking counsel. Let me say that again. It, you have, you've probably expressed your desires and it's been met with thinking counsel. And what I mean by that is that you use emotional language to articulate something you're experiencing, that you're feeling and desiring. So you might say something like, I'm drawn to or I want. But the Christian counsel that you're then met with might be stunted emotionally, and you get an intellectual answer, well, like, that's not what we believe. That's not what we think. So you say, I feel this way, and the response that you get is, well, this is what we think. So your desire's not met with sympathy or, or feelings, and that's falling into one ditch, okay? The privileges are taxonomy of ideas without accounting for the desires of the human heart. The other ditch that people fall into equally pits our mind and our desires against each other and this would be where we decide that our desires and feelings are primary so we alter what we think or what we believe to accommodate how we feel and this would be when we want to bend what scripture says so it can accommodate what we feel And both of these are are just imbalanced. They're going into a ditch on one side of the road. And the Psalms are the place where we can tie together the head and the heart. The aching desire to sin, that consuming hatred for an enemy can and should be indulged before God in prayer instead of acted upon on other humans in the wider world. Our hearts ache the, the things that we feel that just, that just burden us, that we feel deeply in our soul, they can and should be dealt with uh, before God in prayer without compromising. He's designed us to release anger. He's designed us to pursue peace. He's designed us to experience healthy desires and to foster a flourishing existence with him. One of my favorite pastors to read is eugene peterson i quote him frequently when i preach and he likes to call the psalms technology he says these are the tools for the interior life in a world replete with technologies for the exterior life we need tools for the interior because if we do if we don't we're just gonna be running around using things like hammers and computers And apps and eventually we're gonna convince ourselves that the exterior life is the only reality and Peter says if we're uh, Peterson says if we're willfully ignorant of the Psalms we are not thereby excluded from praying but we're going to have to hack our way through formidable country by trial and error with inferior tools and this is where I find myself A thoroughly educated Presbyterian with a head full of knowledge, but a clueless and often absent life of prayer. And I would venture to say that some of you are with me in that. My theological knowledge is something that I treasure. Maybe instead of theological knowledge, you have a deeply developed sense of justice. And you find yourself often consumed by frustration and a desire to see social change. Maybe you have a rich life of emotion and you love to move your body and express your feelings in worshiping God. Or perhaps you're an intellectual whose thirst for knowledge leads you to listen to extra podcasts and sermons every week to fill your mind with knowledge. It's tempting to privilege whatever is the dominant thing in our own faith and thus neglect these other facets. Of spirituality we need tools to tie them all together we need the hardwood logs of solid theology and the hot burning sprigs of dried evergreen that are rich emotions we need to put those together and that is a good Christian spirituality a theologian named Walter Brueggemann describes the Psalms as dialogical literature which is a fancy way of saying they express both sides of a conversation The Psalms are God's truth, uncompromised, coupled with human thoughts and feelings unfiltered. In Brueggemann's words, the Psalms provide the most reliable theological, pastoral, and liturgical resource given us in the biblical tradition. In season and out of season, generation after generation, faithful women and men turn to Psalms as a most helpful resource for conversation with God about things that matter most. Whether we're consumed with lust or anger or joy or sorrow, our thoughts will only get us so far. They will only carry us conceptually. And the Psalms teach us to not just think about God, Not just feel our feelings, but to bring both of those things together with him in conversation. We can feel things about God from a distance. We can think about God from a distance, but the Psalms train us to dialogue with God. David Taylor, another theologian, describes the Psalms as training us to be open and unafraid before God. So the Psalms are not all worship songs. There are lots of different types of Psalms and I already told you that today's Psalm is called an imprecatory Psalm. There's Psalms of praise that celebrate God. Those are probably ones you're familiar with. There's Psalms of lament that groan for a better existence. There are the Psalms of ascent, which are the songs of Israel that they sang together when they moved from exile. And today we're looking at Psalm 12 That, like I said is an imprecatory psalm these Psalms are real talk before God Eugene Peterson likes to mock the opposite of real talk before God which he calls pseudo prayers and he describes these as breathy talk that calms and soothes and conjures good thoughts but Peterson calls these out saying people who are looking for a spiritual soporific don't pray Psalms or at least they don't pray them for very long because of the rampant and unsettling enemy talk that we find in the Psalms we were created to feel feelings and of those feelings one of them is anger at enemies Peterson saying something to the he says something the effect that God is definitely the main character of the Psalms But enemies are a prominent second place. David Taylor, who I just quoted about open and unafraid, he likes to call these psalms psalms of anger or curse psalms. And by curse, he means vulgarity. As Taylor puts it, we trust that God has given us these psalms to rescue us from the desire to do violence to others. And we trust that God has given us these psalms to heal us and unite us and to show us the possibility of faithful anger. If we don't pray these psalms, when crisis comes, we're either going to be knocked off of our faith or we're going to do violence to others. Psalm 12 is faithful anger. It begins by lamenting that humans are failing across creation. The psalmist is assuming that this should be infuriating. The failure of humans should be infuriating. It should make you mad when things are disordered, and I bet it does. Can't we relate to this psalm, this psalmist? Can any of us think of a politician in our society as someone who has noble and heroic qualities? That's what verse one, is complaining about how much do we see people speaking kindly in person but firing shots across the bow at friends and family who disagree with their worldview on social media when you hear a grandstander like matt gates or andrew cuomo is accused of being a scoundrel doesn't that make you mad that they've been lecturing people and they've been completely hypocritical in their life this is what the deceitful lips of neighbors is about in verse two. When you watch people not have adequate health care and plunge into debt, when you watch Jeff Bezos net worth skyrocket because of a pandemic, these things should make us mad. And so much of the pop vocabulary of our culture is trying to figure out how to handle that. People are trying to understand how to handle their frustrations they're longing to know how to judge other people's speech and how it's making them feel so we get terms like virtue signaling or cancel culture gaslighting and we get relativity in speaking what truth means lips are deceitful and it makes me mad in Calvin's writing on Psalm 12 he says the psalmist is not sad because righteous people are being persecuted It's because humans with power and resources are behaving like animals. He says the psalmist is conjuring anger towards God so the anger doesn't turn into violence and deceit amongst the angry. Calvin likens the despicable in power to predatory animals. And he aligns the psalmist calling us to pray out our anger instead of letting it consume us in our interior life thus becoming animals ourselves. He says, when however we see the world is in such a state of disorder as is here described and are afflicted thereby, we ought to be careful not to howl with the wolves. If you take one thing away about the imprecatory Psalms tonight, please let it be this, okay, you ready? Repressed anger is not a Christian attribute. Repressed anger is not equal to being Christian, but it is a common malady among Christians. Anger is a part of the human experience. Some anger is righteous, to be angry about black men being killed by the police or unborn children being killed is good anger that is the anger of psalm 125 because of violence against the helpless ephesians 4 says and don't sin by letting anger control you that verse is actually quoting another psalm psalm 4 Ephesians and the Psalms they're not saying don't ever be angry they're saying be wise about where you take your anger God's not telling his people to never have anger he's saying get mad people get mad with God get mad with the world so it doesn't control you by praying our anger curses and all to God we're not letting that anger become violence he can and has handled it it seems that so much of conflict in Christian community is because people do not know how to properly deal with their emotions spiritually and so they subordinate their feelings through discipline and the pursuit of knowledge How many unhealthy Christians have you met who have an exterior of peace but repressed anger below and they hide it and they hide it and they hide it and that facade of righteousness eventually shatters and savage angry anger just spews out if we make our faith just a taxonomy of thoughts we're gonna have a very stunted relationship with God and people do you ever see some wrong or or experience injustice and just get stuck in a loop in your head between oh I want I want to be like Christ I need to cool it you 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 say forget it just squash those feelings down because Jesus was a lamb right so I, I have to be just like Jesus and I can do that I can be just like Jesus I have it together But you can't shake this deep white knuckled anger within you and then you remember, well, but I'm not Jesus because I'm not God and now I'm having a really hard time trying to be like a lamb even though I'm really angry. I promise you, and I'm sure you've seen this in your own life, that that anger will come out. It's just a question of whether it spews out on other humans or you let it loose In conversation with God in prayer it is not wrong to have that white-knuckled anger that's human that thing within you that wants to raise a vulgar gesture to scream profanity that is not the opposite of Christ the Bible never asks you to stop having feelings it calls you to direct them wisely When someone hurts a child, or lies about you, or shames you, or you see economic, or racial, or social injustice, it is okay to cry, someone should be punished for this. This world was made for shalom, not lies and deceit and narcissism. When you're furious at injustice and cruelty, You can think, someone should be lashed with a cat of nine tails. Someone should have a crown of sharp, hardened thorns pressed into their scalp for for this. Someone should have nails driven through their hands and feet, bleeding down a cross, while totally deprived of anything to wet their exasperated tongue. That is how you should feel when you see injustice. The perpetrator should be punished. Punishment ought to be suffered for injustice. Instead of trying to make yourself seem like Christ by repressing that anger, instead of making yourself the judge of the world, deciding who ought to be punished, we should pray our anger to God, knowing that he did allow someone to take The punishment of the unjust, right? Ourselves included. Violent justice, righteous anger, these are not antithetical to Christian faith. They are compatible when we recognize that Christ gave to us the satisfying punishment of our enemies in Himself. You hear so often, and it is completely true, and I want to remind you that He died for you because you are someone's enemy. But I do especially want you to remember tonight also that we can release our anger. It doesn't have to be repressed because He also died for our enemies. When you think about the movies that have been made about Jesus and you think about the grotesque violence that you've you've seen graphically portrayed on a screen you could think about the fact that he can in fact handle your deepest emotions even if they are anger So we should pray angry prayers we should indulge that suffering inside And imagine Christ suffering the punishment that you desire for your enemy. And thank him that you, as someone else's enemy, have been taken away from that punishment. And that he took that suffering on himself. We remember that. We remember that every week.